and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is the 120th. And I think for the first time, all three interviews today relate to the letter C. It's all very Sesame Street. We have Cargill, Cardbox, and Cheese. Well, it's actually the Virtual Cheese Awards, but that's close enough for me. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we had a rain-free weekend here. And while there's snow in many parts of Europe, this isn't one of them. We also only have three more school days until a week off. Apparently, after missing months of school over the past year, they need a break. But that's fine, I really do enjoy the homeschooling, and I've even learned a few things along the way. We also had a new addition to the household this week, an 18-month-old dog that was given to us, because, well, things just weren't quite hectic enough. I know this is going to sound very nerdy, but when I was walking him on Sunday, I saw a bird I'd never seen before, a white-throated dipper. Definitely one of the great things about rural Scotland is the wildlife. That and place names that I can't pronounce, and that's not just the ones that are in Gaelic. But I guess hard-to-pronounce names isn't restricted to just Scotland. I didn't get to watch the Super Bowl, it was on far too late, but I've been continuing my walking DVD binge watch, although some of them are more history lessons and interviewing people about geology and 18th century industry than they are about actual walking. I'm running out of DVDs to watch, unfortunately, so it might be time to dig out all of the old live music DVDs, as my family run away in fear at the prospect of a three-hour King Crimson concert. Funnily enough, last year I discovered a two-hour show of my band that I'd forgotten about, but my son is refusing to watch it. Smart kid. But at least now I have a dog that I can make watch it with me. But enough of this completely unrelated stuff, let's go through what you're really here for. We have three guests on the podcast this week. We have conversations with Erin Rademacher, Senior Technical Services Specialist at Cargill, Klaus Hockel, Managing Director of Cardbox Packaging, and Sarah DeWitt, founder of the Virtual Cheese Awards. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Now that we're into February, the news is starting to flow a little more, and we're about to hit the first batch of 2020 financial reports with terms like EBITDA and net profits before tax and lots more that I have no idea about. And they say things like our lemon business in Guatemala was squeezed and butter was soft and taking into account currency fluctuations. That's another favourite one. But there are no financials in the news this week, so I will recap for you what has happened in case you missed it. Or maybe you just need a reminder. So this week's news, Stern Chemie has boosted its soy lecithin alternatives, DPO has launched the first ambient yogurt drink with chewable pieces in Thailand, and Tate and & Lyle has created Fiber University. The Ethical Dairy, which isn't that far from where I live, has halted sales to Northern Ireland due to the red tape and the cost of Brexit regulations. The UK government is going to issue a new code of conduct for dairy supply chains. And here's a bit of a tongue twister. In the UK, plant-based One Planet Pizza plans to use Norseland's Applewood Vegan. Thankfully, it's not a peck of pickled pepper plant-based pizza. In the US, McCarty Family Farms has received B Corp certification. All Valio Dairy Farms in Finland are now receiving a sustainability bonus. The Dairy Sustainability Awards are looking for nominations and Nestle has published its Europe, Middle East and North Africa climate priorities. 
Wyke Farms in the UK has completed its Export Centre of Excellence, Pacor is investing in expansion, Fermanich has committed to carbon neutrality by 2025, and you can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. First this week, Cargill is expanding its portfolio of label-friendly Simpure starches, adding tapioca to its corn and potato-sourced starch range. Cargill said the starches are versatile and suitable for a range of applications, including dairy and dairy alternatives, convenience sources and ready meals, meat alternatives and pet food. And to tell us more is Erin Rademacher, Cargill's Senior Technical Services Specialist. I wonder if you could talk me through the new SimPure range and what products they're suitable for. Yeah, so the SimPure brand itself stands for Simple and Pure. Um, What that means is label-friendly ingredients that are easy for consumers to recognize. So think of ingredients that do not contain e-numbers and use physical processes to make them functional instead of, you know, traditional chemically-derived processes. And then our SimPure line consists of corn, potato, and then just recently we added tapioca into the mix. And these products really play in a range of application spaces such as dairy, dairy alternatives, convenience applications like frozen ready meals, pet foods, and then meat and meat alternatives. And why did you add these tapioca starches to the range? Yeah, so we just launched a line of tapioca in January. And really the reasoning behind that is that we were seeing that tapioca launches on finished products have been up almost 60% versus five years ago. And a majority of that growth was happening in the dairy space. And That's due to a couple of reasons. So the tapioca botanical source itself is inherently non-GMO. So it provides that health halo for consumers. Um, And then in terms of functionality, tapioca tends to lend itself to a very neutral flavor profile. And that can be really important for delicate applications such as dairy, like a vanilla yogurt. And so there are four variations. What are the differences between the four and the uses for each of those? So we have four different variations and they're broken out by two different botanical sources. So we have what is called a 99600 series, and that is a regular tapioca botanical. And so that provides a heavier mouthfeel and is really great for cup set applications. And then we have a 99900 series, and that's more of a unique waxy variety of tapioca. And that's a little bit different than the regular tapioca because it provides a lighter texture and can be good for things like stirred applications. Also, if you need really great cold storage or freezer stability. And then it also has a greater creaminess profile, which is a benefit if you think of plant-based applications, you know, like think of a plant-based yogurt where you're needing to remove the dairy solids. And with doing that, you can lose some of that creaminess. So this can help add that back to the formulation. And then within each of those two botanical sources, we have two different options with varying process tolerance. And so when I say process tolerance, I mean differing resistance to things like acid, shear, and heat. And that becomes important to the manufacturer so we can provide them with the right product to fit the needs of their specific process. What are the benefits to manufacturers using tapioca starches in dairy and dairy alternatives? 
So tapioca, a lot of it comes from that neutral flavor profile that we talked about. So if you have a a really delicate flavor like a lemon or a vanilla, you're wanting those flavors to come forward and making sure that they're not masked by the texturizers and stabilizers that are in your system. So tapioca is great for that. Um, It also has that really good cold storage stability. So that means that it will control cineresis or water leaching out of the product over the course of the shelf life. And then adding those creamy textures or those fat mimetic type properties that become really important in that dairy alternative space. We also see that consumer perception on tapioca is really favorable. And then all of our tapioca products are also non-GMO project verified. And is it something that's cost effective for manufacturers to use when compared with other starches? Yeah, that's a great question. And my answer to that is actually twofold. So I would say, first off, label-friendly options in general are always going to come at a premium to a typical chemically modified starch. And that has a lot to do with the inputs that it takes to produce the finished ingredient itself. So I would say at this stage of the label-friendly movement, All manufacturers are pretty well aware that there is a price differential between label-friendly and chemically modified. But what I would say when it comes to choosing one tapioca supplier over another, we're getting very positive feedback from our customers that more often than not, we're coming in as as a cost-competitive supplier to our competition. And what are the differences between the different types? You kind of mentioned it a little while ago, but there's tapioca, corn, potato. Yeah, I think, well, one reason that we want to really diversify the portfolio into different botanical sources is to allow our customers to make those decisions for themselves and give them flexibility and options. You know, they'll have consumer reasoning and preferences and studies of their own, and then we're there to provide those options for them to choose from. But I would say from a functional perspective, each of these botanical sources really provides their own set of strengths. So when it comes to corn, I'd say that the main thing with corn is it's the most commonly used botanical source in the industry across categories, you know, both from a label friendly and a modified perspective. So if you are a developer and you're switching from a modified corn starch into a label friendly solution, it's going to be easiest for you if you keep that botanical source consistent in terms of a one-to-one replacement type of situation. And then potato and tapioca, they tend to offer more of these niche functionalities as well as niche consumer appeal. So potato itself is a very large starch granule, and that lends itself to being a workhorse for water holding. And so that can become really important in applications like meat and meat alternatives, where you're needing to improve your yield or your succulence and juiciness. But with that larger granule structure, and because it can hold water so readily, it also then can um, add to having a very high viscosity. So if you're a dairy manufacturer, you might not want that high viscosity up front because it can reduce your throughput. Whereas tapioca, it kind of plays nicely between corn and potato. And so we talked before, it has that really neutral flavor profile, gives that creaminess perception and good cold storage stability. But at the end of the day, for us, it's really about having those variety of tools at our customers' disposal so they can meet their various labeling, processing, and functional needs across all of the different categories. Your customers, is it easy to communicate with them on the different starches? I mean, are they already well aware of what those properties are, or do you have to talk them through those properties? 
Well, I would say our direct customers, so the manufacturers that we sell to, it's it ranges. You know, there's a lot of people that have their own starch experts in house, so they're very familiar with these different varieties, botanical sources, what they can do. And there's others that are, you know, wanting to learn that information. So it's up to us to build awareness and communicate and share what the different products and options can do. I would say from a final consumer perspective, they're not as familiar with ingredients on product labels that are not recognizable. And I think that lends to why there is such a high demand for label-friendly starch. So we see in consumer studies that we've done, there's a direct link between familiarity at the consumer level and purchase intent. So, you know, a consumer might be familiar with cornstarch on a label or potato starch, but as soon as you put modified food starch on a label, it starts to feel unfamiliar and then red flags kind of start to go up for that consumer as to like, what does that mean? Does that mean that my product's full of chemicals? Is it bad for me? And that's where there's more of this drive and a need from a consumer perception perspective of for label friendly ingredients. Does tapioca tick the same box as corn and potato in that respect then for consumers? They see that it's a plant, so they're cool with it? Correct. Correct. Yep tapioca, anything that's potato starch, corn starch, tapioca starch, we see high levels of familiarity at the consumer level, which is linked with positive purchase intent. And what's the reaction been like so far? You said that companies that are, you know, obviously you've tested it out. What's the reaction been like? Yeah, we've seen a lot of traction with customers wanting to test out, um, especially the new tapioca. You know, it's the newest on the market. So really positive feedback in terms of performance, functionality. We have a lot of new projects in the pipeline that are coming to a close here soon. And we're just excited to grow and expand that business as well. And as far as what one of your customers utilizing it in their own recipes, it doesn't call for any major changes in what they have to do? Yeah, I think it all depends on what they're starting with. So if it's, I mean, if it's a new product, then it's kind of a moot point because, you know, they're starting from the ground up. If they're moving from a modified starch to a label-friendly starch, then it depends on what variety are they using currently? What are they switching into? If they're switching into the same botanical source, then it's generally I would say like a 10% increase in dosage that you have to use. If you're moving to a tapioca from a modified corn, a lot of times you can use less because it tends to provide more viscosity up front. It is application specific and dependent, but we have a lot of application studies under our belt that we've done for the last year, really testing these products across different categories so we can give our customers that indication and, and, you know, starting points that will help make them successful. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about the products? No, I think just thanks for having me. And, you know, we're really eager to support our customers on their label-friendly journey. We are excited to see new challenges. We are an ever-growing line of label-friendly starches and label-friendly ingredients in general. So if there are specific needs or wants or requests, you know, bring them my way and we can get that into our working funnel. Now we head over to one of my favourite countries, and that's Austria, which is where we spoke to Klaus Hockel, Managing Director of the global company Cardbox Packaging. 
A new fold-out cardboard spoon developed by Cardbox Packaging in conjunction with Griner Packaging has been introduced to address the banning of disposable plastic cutlery in the EU from mid-2021. And Klaus can tell us more. So I wonder if we could start with giving me a bit of background on Cardbox and where you have locations, where your products are sold, what you have for the dairy and dairy alternative industries, that kind of thing. At the moment, we have four plants operating and two plants uh, are based in Austria. One plant is in Czech Republic and uh, another plant is in the US. The plants in Czech Republic and the US we are operating as joint venture plants together with Greiner Packaging. We 90% dedicated to the food industry, meaning, of course, dairy industry, but of course, confectionery, uh, convenience foods, and foods to go is a quite big uh, branch that we supply. We sell mainly, of course, in, in Austria, in Germany, Czech Republic, Poland. Uh, UK, Ireland, and of course in the US. Consumers, I guess, these days are looking for more sustainable packaging. How do your products address that? We have one big advantage that, uh, in general, our main material, which is cardboard, is by principle very sustainable at all, meaning that uh, it's 100% recyclable. But many times, uh, as we are producing for the food industry, we need uh, a certain barrier or a certain coating in order to avoid um, bad impact to the product which is packed, uh, for example, in the, in the frozen food area or as well when you have a, a very greasy food. So many times this is usually solved by using laminated carton board. Usually you laminate it with PE. And we have started two years ago um, with a focused and very important development to substitute this PE through our own barrier coating, which uh, is based on dispersion-based uh, material, and uh, thus it's 100% recyclable. And so when it comes to, I mean, there, there are so many different products, how, how do you work with your customers to provide the right packaging and help them reduce their carbon footprints? Usually, as we are only working on demand, usually customers are coming to us. This is the very typical way. But on the other side, we are working based on developments and uh, innovation projects. Uh, we are going to the markets uh, presenting our innovations. So usually, many times, customers are knocking on the door, asking for a certain solution or have uh, presenting their problem. And nowadays, this is more and more focused on sustainable solutions, and they're asking for developments uh, which make their total packaging much more sustainable than before. So those projects are not at all short projects. They are uh, long-term projects in terms of at least one year, two years. This requires that you're working together in project groups with your customers beginning with these targets and goals, what you'd like to achieve at the end of the day. And, and then you need a, a very joint development uh, on both sides uh, in order to achieve the goals which you have set up. The most recent thing that you worked on is the 
cardboard spoon with Griner packaging. I wonder if you could tell me how that collaboration came about and a bit more about the product and the target for that product. Uh, this is Curvector. It's a part of our sustainable product range and uh, a part of our strong development towards sustainable solutions, which I mentioned before. The natural requirement is coming from the industry to reduce the plastic amount in the packaging. And of course, also in the dairy industry or in the yogurt industry, a lot of plastic spoons are used as they sell their products uh, along with the plastic spoons to offer their customers a convenience product. And we have started together with Grana Packaging and Development in order to substitute this uh, plastic spoon for yogurt products. And it started one year ago. And you can imagine that it's not uh, an easy development as you have to overcome issues in the material, in the composition of the coating, as of course the spoon is touching your tongue and uh, you're putting a yogurt on, on the spoon into your mouth. And on the other side, you have to produce millions of spoons on the packaging line, which are automatically putting the spoons into lids. It was necessary to have a very close and joint development together with our colleagues on kind of packaging. And as we are running joint ventures together, uh, it, in this case, it was quite easy because we are, we are very close in development, we are very close in working together, and therefore it was quite uh, easy and smooth to make a lot of test runs with uh, new developments and to test it on the, on the machines of Kraina and also the machines of the customers. And therefore, we were quite fast in developing this um, sustainable spoon. And it's it's for use in yogurt. Could it be used with like ice creams as well or desserts? Uh, for desserts, yes. For ice creams, I fear that uh, the ice creams are too uh, rigid and that the spoon, uh, because of the cardboard material, is too soft. But for yogurt and for desserts, which are more flexible in terms of the of the substrate, uh, it's, it works brilliantly. You've just won an award for packaging. I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about that. Yes, over the last years we won several different awards. One award uh, we won on the on the Czech packaging competition for the cardboard spoon. But on the other side, uh, we just won uh, for the World Packaging uh, Association the award for ice cream cup, which we have uh, brought to the markets based on a sustainable barrier coating some years ago. And this cup we produced for a special Swiss customer for a high value ice cream. And the customer is looking or was looking for a very sustainable, natural carbon board material without any PE. And our coating is 100% recyclable and also even compostable. And it's not only the, the coating for the cup, but it's even the coating for the lid and the coating for the paper lid, which uh, usually uh, you put uh, on the cup between the cup and the lid. Is there any, obviously, if you're able to tell me, is there anything specific that you're working on in the next little while? We are focused very much on sustainable products and uh, the range is getting bigger and bigger. We, we started some years ago together with, with Greiner Packaging, producing the K3 uh, sleeves in, in Czechia 
and in uh, in the US then we were substituting um, with our technology pure plastic containers um, one example is for example uh, the uh, packaging we are running for for Henkel washing powder which is now also a combination of plastic and carton board and with this combination we were able to reduce the, the plastic amount of 40 uh, percent and then more and more we were coming more to 100 percent um, uh, carton board solutions i mentioned before the spoon i mentioned the, the ice cream cup and uh, also last year we started uh, a very important development which is uh, very interesting for the next future uh, which is based on, on trays, uh, carton pot trays, which are 100% sealable. And these trays contain also a barrier coating. And with the barrier coating, you're able to put uh, into the trays an ice cream, you're able to put a, a frozen fish, for example, or uh, some cakes and cookies. And uh, But we will also to, to elaborate and to, uh, to further develop the coating to be able to Substitute in future PET uh, trays, um, and this will be the, the the long-term goal for our project. These trays are 100% recyclable. They are sealable, which is also a pure innovation. There are not too many uh, trays which are really 100% um, carton board, not containing any plastic, and which are 100% uh, sealable. And this is uh, for the next. One to years, one of our big uh, product ranges where we would like to go further. Next, it's to Cheese Awards. I know there are a lot of them around the world, but one that started last year to help cheese bakers in the UK suffering from reduced sales due to the pandemic is the Virtual Cheese Awards. And as you can guess from the name, it's all done online. Last year, of course, due to the pandemic, it was all put together very quickly, and unfortunately, we're still in lockdown now, so there is going to be a second Virtual Cheese Awards in May. You can find details on DairyReporter.com, and later on in the interview, you will hear how and where to enter as well. To tell us about it all is Sarah DeWitt, founder of the Virtual Cheese Awards. All right, so I guess if we could start things off by talking about the origins of the virtual cheese awards the origin of the awards is really from understanding that the british cheesemakers really needed our support and from the beginning of lockdown the event started to be cancelled and the industry as a whole started to go into lockdown as well so obviously restaurants hospitality were all closed and cheesemakers were left with a huge amount of volume of cheese and there was also lots of farmers who were showing pouring milk away and so I guess as a whole, I was thinking, what um, can we do to support the cheesemakers? I'm really, really passionate about the cheese industry, having worked in it for about the last 16 years. So my, as some would call, wacky idea was born um, during my lockdown exercise uh, when I was spell running on the moors here in the Pennines. So each day I'd go out after working at home for the day and kind of gradually I pieced it together in terms of how it could work until I felt confident to actually share it and kind of pull together a team for the 2020 event so it was pulled together very very quickly in the space of two months or even less actually and it was on a total shoestring all the finance was pulled together from kind of sponsorship and everyone was very very generous to help us make that happen 
So I just thought there must be a way for the cheese industry to connect and for us to actually celebrate Great British Cheese. So I kept it in the family to begin with. I um, spoke to a couple of clients of mine who are cheese makers and they thought it was a great idea. Um, I then discussed it with uh, my longtime friend Nigel Pooley who helped me pull it together and then we pulled other people into the team as well to help create a website and lots of learning you know lots of support so it was a totally uh, non-profit event with the profits that we made going into a bursary for the Specialist Cheesemakers Association and also Rabi. It was a whirlwind event actually that caught a lot of interest and just the willingness to have fun and to kind of celebrate Great British Cheese as a whole. And crazily enough, you're doing it again. What? <laughs> <laughs> crazy enough, we're doing it again. So, what did what did you learn from the first one that you that you are taking into this second one, and has it grown? Um, so we learned that actually anything is actually possible, and a great award and event can be set up virtually. We learned that um, that it was a great platform to support British cheesemakers and we're doing it again because we really believe that cheesemakers still need support and we also learned that the virtual cheese awards can and did make a great difference so our best of british winners was felton farm run by marcus and penny nagel they were amazingly deserving winners and we know that actually from actually entering the awards and winning it has made a big difference to their business and obviously highlighting cheese and the kind of great kind of setup that they have and the great quality and the innovation of their cheese making. Our customers actually, who in effect are the entrants into the awards, the kind of feedback from them was actually fantastic because they really, really loved and embraced our kind of unique way of actually judging the, the actual cheese. So each individual cheese that was entered was actually judged online and could be seen online. So all the feedback from the kind of judges and the view of the cheese was all visible and the kind of feedback could be heard, which is very different to a normal cheese event. So usually judging is is kind of kept away from the entrance and um, we kind of felt that it was a great point of difference and also very, very important that the cheese judging was kind of open, honest and transparent. And it was also a way of actually demystifying cheese awards and cheese kind of judging so anyone who logged in online could actually see and hear and and get a real sense of what was happening we paired up two appropriate judges so each of the kind of judges were actually selected according to their expertise in um, uh, cheese and parcels of cheese were kind of packed up for the two judges and they were actually sent off directly to them and then as the event unfolded they actually connected together and they were actually judging obviously in a separate location, but were actually judging the same cheese at the same time as if they were in the same event room. Will there be more categories and more entries this year? We had over 300 entries last year, which which I thought was fantastic. We have raised that to 400, primarily due to the support that we got last year. So the event will be slightly bigger. We do have some extra categories, though, which, which I think is exciting. We've also included a dairy-free and a vegan cheese category, which I guess as a purist may come as a surprise. Personally, believe it's just really, really, really important. So the Virtual Cheese Awards pride itself in being all-inclusive, so all-inclusive to any cheese makers, any size. So we welcome entries from 
large and small and medium and also felt it was important to actually get entries from the kind of vegan and the dairy-free category too. We've also added a recognised excellence category as well. So this will be not really including samples, but it will be about nominating a cheese hero. So kind of someone who has gone over and above to actually support the cheese industry. Uh, we're looking at innovation in packaging and we're looking at kind of eco focus on kind of sustainability in cheese production. So we'd really like to recognise these different classes in this overall category as well. You mentioned earlier about how this helps cheesemakers. You you mentioned that it's not for profit and all the money goes back. How does that work? Absolutely, yeah. So as I said, last year we, we kind of started very, very close to the event and we ran it on a shoestring. Um, it will be pretty much the same this year. So we are getting all of our money from kind of sponsorship. So I'd just like to kind of say again that our two members, uh, Cara, and Jeremy Bowie and I are working really, really hard to contact potential sponsors. So please get in touch with us for that. So the benefit to the industry is about continuously raising an awareness and actually celebrating Great British Cheese. So leading up to the event, um, we will be doing lots of kind of social media and talking about the event and getting everyone engaged. So it's kind of really about celebrating and having fun with the kind of Great British Cheese. Again, we are not for profit and we will be donating this year to the Specialist Cheese Makers Association. And we are working closely with Catherine Mead, who's the, who's the chairman, and we'll be pulling together a bursary for the benefit of and support of those cheese makers. We're also working with the Cheese Academy. I'd really like to make it clear and point out that we're not in competition with anybody here. We are here to promote, to celebrate and support the British cheese industry and are working together closely with the other bodies in the industry. For anybody that's interested, how do they they just go to virtualcheeseawards.com? Yes, so we've got a website, so www.virtualcheeseawards.com, and on there we have emails for myself, Jeremy and Cara Bowen, who are amazing uh, members of the team doing sponsorship, and we have Vicky Rogerson and Minna Robinson, who are our PR and marketeers. If you want to enter, entries opened this week and will be open until the 24th of March. And I haven't actually said when it is yet, so I, I just need to get that in as well. So sure. the event will be on Friday, the 7th of May. Is it like an all-day thing, or is it just a few hours? Or Last year, we ran from about 11 until 5. A few more learnings from last year into this year is how a platform works online. So we're looking at slightly different kind of platforms, and we'll be running different things at different times. So you'll be able to see judging, you'll be able to see a discussion with the experts we're aiming to make the event slightly more interactive but just watch this space i anticipate the event will be about four hours long hopefully please 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 this is over by next year but if it is over <laughs> well do you think you'll do this again even after the um after the lockdown or do you think you'll just breathe a sigh of relief and say okay we're back to normal and well i, I guess the answer really is down to the cheesemakers so as long as the cheesemakers want us to continue as long as the cheesemakers need uh, support then we will be there to run a, an event for them 
I believe that the event is about support and also celebration. British cheese has so many diverse and interesting cheeses and we are about supporting but also celebrating. So it will really depend on cheesemakers and and the demand for it. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. This week continued to be uh, lively trading in uh, futures in the dairy market. Uh, butter continued to increase in strength, um, whereas prices in skim milk powder remained relatively flat, particularly given the fact that O'Neill was back uh, in the market with a tender. So February, March, butter was up around 100 euros on the week to 36.50 level. Quarter two was almost up around the same level as well, trading around 37.30, 37.40 level. Quarter three was up around 80, 90 euros at a 37.65 level. And quarter four was um, up around 75 euros at the 37.95 level. February, March skim was down slightly, maybe around the 23.50 level. Quarter two and quarter three were relatively flat. Even quarter four was flat also on the week, more or less. Quarter two was trading around 23.70. Bit of a premium then for quarter three at 2400 and uh, further premium for quarter four at 24.20. We continue to be relatively well bid as well, trading around the 8.75 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll chat again next week. StoneX, formerly INCLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for Podcast 120. I made the big mistake this week of looking into trade shows taking place in the second half of 2021, and there do seem to be quite a lot planning on going ahead. So many that I could go to two a month from September onwards. Although how realistic that is, I have no idea. But it's good to think about it. And that's not the getting up at 3am to get to the airport, struggling to get your bags on the flight, not finding any food at the airport, and now having to join the non-EU line for passport control. But thinking about the good bits, meeting people, discovering new places and new restaurants, doing interviews. Anyway, let's hope it all happens. It's eerily quiet in the house at the moment, which when you have an eight-year-old and a new dog is a little bit worrying, so I must go and check that out. So wherever in the world you may be, I hope you are staying safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.